You can listen to The Vile Files ad-free on Amazon Music. What's going on, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of The Vile Files Going Deeper Edition. Boy, do we have a great episode for you today. I'm Nick, your host, joined by Allie in studio. Amanda is abroad or I don't know, home. I don't know. This is like in New York, but not here. Surrounded by some beautiful Native American art because my grandmother loves Native American art. So I would consider myself a little Santa Fe in New York. All right. All right. We have a great episode for you today. Uh, Dr. Maya Shankar is with us today, uh, the behavioral scientist uh, who's been on our uh, show before. She's also worked for the Obama White House. She works for Google. She a lot of interesting things in regards to behavior and habits. And with it being the new year and people constantly talking about New Year's resolutions and hopefully starting new habits, we brought in the expert to talk, uh, talk about how to actually maybe accomplish some of these goals. And uh, we get into a bunch of other cool stuff as it relates to healthy behaviors and habits and relationships and keeping the spark alive. And it's always great. Identity. Identity. It was great. You're definitely, it's a, well, you've already downloaded it. So here we are. Thank you. Uh, So so thank you. So keep listening. Is there anything, uh, before we get to Dr. Maya, is there anything we've missed uh, that uh, there's a lot, there seems to be a lot going on. Like, holidays and traveling i want to touch on tj and amy because i heard that they spent christmas together like they're just like not being subtle in the slightest remember we talked about do do you think they should be subtle i mean if they're together i I mean pop i say pop off too much but like live your life i said i i might the the picture i took with tj and amy i feel like is like it's upped its value yeah yeah it's valuable currency oh yeah you're basically their third wheel. I'm going to drop an NFT with uh, me, me, TJ, and Amy. Amy. I also, I think you can argue, like, if the whole point of two hosts is to have chemistry, they understood the assignment almost too much. And I think it would be wonderful to watch it play out on national television. Yeah, put them that back way, on like, TV. I want to yeah, watch it. Yeah, I mean, why, they're they're getting more press for GMA3 than yeah. ever. I say put them back I've on never been more. I've never been more into... Uh, why? What was the reason they got taken off the air or temporarily? Because they said it was like the scandal and they didn't want, it was like the whispering in the hallways. Like, it's too much. They didn't want to distract from the hard-hitting news. news. Yeah, I guess. Yeah. Which, I, you know, I was on GMA3 to promote my book, but I feel like it. we we could still have promoted it. Even if they had been happily a couple and out at that point. Yeah. It could have been like, it could have been I an mean, even better interview. You know, it's we true. could have really got into it. You could have read them passages and asked how it applies to their yeah. relationship. Yeah. So, but they're, they're they're like full on together. Yeah, full on together. Spent the holidays together. There's many many pictures. I, there was one article that was like they're making out like teens in Miami, and I was like, so you mean making out like teens? <laughs> like teens, <laughs> only teens make out. Uh, I mean, listen, like there is some infidelity. It seems like there we don't condone that. I mean, and and for the for the spouses who you know, and who knows, we don't really know the full scope of these relationships or how they were. Mm-hmm. Maybe they were. Maybe there was an understanding already. Like, who knows? Like, maybe they were kind of already separated. I have no idea. Uh, but I think uh, any criticism coming their way probably is coming from the camp of of not condoning infidelities. Mm-hmm. But as someone who doesn't know anything about the details of any of these relationships, 
I mean, if if they're together, they should just be together, and I don't think they should hide. Yeah. You know, it was the hiding that, yeah. Yeah, it's like we're treating this like a murder investigation, and it's like, have you guys been following the story of the very tragic Idaho murders? Yeah. A little bit. Yeah. Yeah. So it's so they, it's gotten really crazy now. It's truly like CSI level yeah. because the person who they arrested and have in custody was studying uh, criminology, criminal, literally, yeah, criminology. It's almost too crazy to be true. Well, and he was arrested in Pennsylvania, right? And from what I read, He's from there, his dad didn't he and his dad drive from where the murders happened to Pennsylvania? Like, was his were his parents hiding him? Oh, and where's the line? Like, a, with your child, there's a girl on TikTok claiming to be. His ex girlfriend. She's uh, she's making a lot of TikToks about it. I don't it's know how so I feel about how do how do I how do we feel about that nowadays? With like, I mean, I'm assuming all her TikToks are about. She's been popping off. Yeah, how do we feel about that? Because it's funny how like all of these things. The second it was announced that he was arrested, all of these people were kind of coming forward with details. Whether it was people who'd gone to high school with him, or I know when he'd been a TA, people were coming forward and saying he was apparently really harsh and would grade everyone like, extremely low grades, and the whole class complained to the professor, and that he would write these very long like criticisms. And it's, I don't, you know, it's all this stuff where it's like you have no idea what's relevant and what's not, and is it. It's yeah, like someone... just because he was kind of a, a perfectionist or a dick doesn't mean he's a murderer. But maybe all of these little things played in the role of his like psychology of like who who he was. And is it like was this like the first of what could have been many? Like is you know is this like serial serial killer like mentality? Because it seems like this was like an arbitrary killing. Well. It happened on the 13th of November, and after Thanksgiving break, only 9,000 out of 11,000 students on the campus did not return because I think there was absolute terror because it was this out-of-nowhere crime in a place that hadn't had a murder in, I think, seven years or something crazy. So it's like, it really does kind of like make you quake in your boots because it's just, you have no idea like what's going on. Did you hear about him? Apparently he called into some show too. And like, and he was like speculating about who the murderer could be. No way. Well, there. That's how I found out who this girl, this girl who's claiming to be a boyfriend. She's mm-hmm. claiming to have been his girlfriend, mm-hmm. and she's also saying that she thinks that's his voice. It sounds like him. It was some. It was like a really weird call. It's floating around on TikTok. Okay. And it, he's this person on the other end of the phone. Sounds kind of. Just sounds like a. Sounds kind of weird. And they had like yeah. a real like interesting opinions on the case but it was like which well, would make sense someone that went to that, high school with him said like he was always very dominant and would like put me in headlocks and like was just like kind of like this very i don't know violent handsy person like aggressive aggressive kind of, like, yeah yeah, yeah. The yes, the stuff like that it's hard to like again there's a there's a there's a big gap between you know authoritative figure my my brother who's a cop is a bit of an authoritative mm-hmm. figure he likes to be in charge like yeah that's murdering four random college students is a big leap so i guess brian's dad when they drove when they did the cross-country road trip for two and a half days uh said that he was acting normal and not out of character despite having just committed like it's like it, that's almost like weirder to me like you can be completely normal and calm after killing people well i mean sure but he also like, killed four, like he randomly killed four people. So like, yeah, because it doesn't seem, this wasn't like a crime of passion or like it was, it sounded like one of those movies where someone's trying to get away with the perfect murder and didn't. Jump in the car. 
time for a and cross like, country. What road would trip. they have done had they not gotten caught? Probably continue Again, doing it, right? Yeah. Or isn't that the mentality? So creepy. And it is like crazy the way it turns like everybody on the internet into a journalist being like, I knew XYZ, you know, like trying to piece it together. Oh, wait, but speaking of journalists, did you guys see that Barbara Walters passed away? Yeah. Sad. Icon. R.I.P. We used to I watch 2020. Like the every, hard-hitting every, questions. There was a moment in my childhood that every Friday, my, me and my mom and my parents, we'd like eat ice cream and watch 2020 on Friday nights when, when Barbara was headlining 2020. Love that. <laughs> I saw a TikTok and it was like me after I've had several drinks and it was just a compilation of like her hard hitting questions. It's like, how did you know your father? Like, blah, 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 blah. blah. And I was like, yeah. (laughs) Especially presidents. Like she would get get interviews with presidents, be like, talk about your relationship with your mom. And I was like, me on a first date. Yeah. Yeah. Barbara, what a legend. R.I.P. Truly. Do, do we all want to ask each other a very intense? (laughs) Do we have any hard hitting questions we want to ask each other? What's my, you get, what's my biggest that's not a hard-hitting question well answer it then you know what's my biggest regret um i was gonna make a joke but <laughs> i don't want you guys to cry today well you're gonna be like hiring that's too, you that's too oh yeah i was <laughs> <laughs> that's not a hard-hitting hard-hitting questions are more specific about do you consider yourself better than your bachelor peers nick that would that's not, that's not a, yeah. He doesn't like our questions, that's but he's still not answer. answering them. <laughs> no, I don't. Okay. It's not, yeah, it's got to be. Well, you come up with one then. Hmm, well, I don't. This game was a good try. I don't know. <laughs> this game was a good try. Barbara, we need you back. Well, I think we are going to get some hard-hitting questions on there's, did you guys see if there's an interview coming up um, released this coming Sunday with Harry and Anderson Cooper. Anderson Cooper. Our widow nepotism baby. Yeah, what are, what, are, widow nepo baby. what are hard-hitting questions we'd ask Harry, you know? Well, he said there was like a little pull quote of him saying that uh, he wants to basically get back on good terms with his, bro- with his brother and his father. And I just thought that was so ironic because I'm like, as we've discussed on all of our coverage of the Harry and Meghan thing, that's probably not the best way to go about doing that. They clearly don't like all these public interviews, the tell-alls. Or saying that publicly. My question to Harry would be, what, if anything, do you think you have to apologize or are responsible for the falling out with your family? Oh, yeah. Do we think Anderson Cooper was the right person to do the interview? Yeah, I think I feel like Anderson Cooper is a good journalist. Yeah. I think he asked some tough questions. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'll watch it. I'm excited to do see Do you it. think Anderson Cooper will ask tough questions or it will just be like hanging out with Harry. I know. That's what I'm afraid of. Like is, I mean, and I don't think there's a right or wrong. Like are there hard questions? Like I know some of the fans will want the hard hitting questions, but like, is this, this, he is the, he isn't interviewing a president. He's not a head of state. He's not like, this is not like when you think of hard hitting questions, it's like, yeah, these people are in charge of like real policy and like, it's also definitely promo for his book coming out as well. So it's like, is it going to be more, I have a tease of things that we can learn in the book. Like, I don't know where promo and I, I just don't, I, I just think at some point they need to take some ownership of whatever role they're playing in this dynamic. Yeah. Right or wrong. I don't think they just can keep coming out and I want to know what William's text was to Harry after the Oprah interview. He, well, he won't share that. That's what I want Anderson to ask. When is this interview? I believe it comes out on it's Sunday. Be out this Sunday. Yeah. Ooh. Well, we can talk about it in freestyle next week. Harry and Megan keeping us busy. I hope Harry doesn't sound. I mean, I don't want Harry to sound whiny. Mm. I don't think he will. I think he came across very well in their. No, he did. He did. 
But I just like enough is enough of complaining about your situation. Mm. Is it complaining or is it explaining? It sounds like complaining to some people. I would be really curious how Harry personally feels because I think, you know, so much of like the topic of the, the documentary and discourse and that has existed around Megan has been like the role of like, what is it to have an American, an actress and like a woman of color welcomed into this institution? And I would be curious how Harry personally feels about his role in that and like whether he feels like he should have protected her more or whether he feels like he should have foreseen the hostile environment that like, you know, such a colonial and white like institution has. Um, and I, re- I would really kind of wonder like what his thoughts around that were. I kind of feel like they touched on that in their series, though, too. You know, like he talks about he could anticipate it. But yeah, the race element was completely different than it was for Kate than it was for Diana. That's what he brought up to his family of why it was so different. Yeah, I feel like he touched on that a lot. Yeah. On, on but, the yeah, I guess I'm more just like curious, like him on a personal level, like, does he like to what extent he feels like a sense of like responsibility? I don't think that would be. I think he does feel bad. It's like it's like hitting question. It's like how he said he feels responsible for Megan and her dad's falling out. I'm actually less curious about I'm I'm more curious about his actual relationship with his family than his father Megan. Yeah. Then like because Megan almost seems like a easy scapegoat of like of blame like even the phrase Meg's like it's all on blaming Megan for this fallout or this relationship with Megan has something to do with the fallout and like maybe they're maybe that played a role but like I, I just don't think, I think if you have a fallout with family, people can be, other people, outsiders can be a catalyst, but there has to be already damage and scars and fractions in a relationship for you to allow other, if, if other people are playing a role and are t- pulling you apart, I feel like there already has to be wounds and things like that. And I am more curious at this, at this point and finding out what those, and finding out uh, Harry's relationship with William and his father that has nothing to do with Megan leading up to the point where he met Megan rather than figuring, you know, trying to like the pointing of the figure finger and like this whole Harry, you know, the, yeah, with anything to do with yeah, Harry like, and Megan. Context. Yeah. It's there. just kind of like, okay, fine. Like they're together. They're in love. They left fine. You know, like at the end, I'm willing to just chalk it up to like, they just wanted a different life than the ex than the institution wanted for them. Mm-hmm. And whether some people agree with that or disagree with that, it's their life. They have the right to choose that. But in terms of Harry having a relationship with his family, I am curious about that dynamic, especially as it relates to ev- anything not Megan related. Well, I wonder also, I think for me, like the security element that was discussed in Harry and Megan is really relevant in terms of like as much as there's. I, I just feel like that was kind of next level in terms of like the conflict that you may have interpersonally between a family versus the way it seemed like his family. And who knows, maybe the three weeks that have passed, they would have seen like how atrocious the hounding was and like would have kind of like stepped up and provided security again. But like that to me feels like a real point of no return that his family was going to like leave him vulnerable and like put him and his wife and his children yeah, yeah but like also they have to harm. respond to people with budgets and taxpayers and are we gonna are yeah. the british taxpayers I'm, gonna pay for them over in canada when they're no longer th- and that's what i mean part like, of the family it's not that like, i get harry and megan wanted to explain their side of the story 
And the difference between explanation or complaining, again, is the eye and the beholder. But at the end of the day, until we, and I don't think we ever will, hear the other side, at this point, it just sounds like, like until the other side can share their others, share their side, I think it behooves them to maybe just not keep throwing stones, even if those are justifiable stones, like especially in the public forum. Because whether you're justified or not, if your ultimate goal is to reconcile, mm-hmm. then it's not going to feel like a justification to the other side. It's just going to feel like more airing of dirty laundry. I saw a photo of, uh, you know, how Kate and William were just in Boston. I saw some photos that people took of like them on a commercial flight to Boston. Like I think they were in the more like business class, first class area, but like they were for sure on a commercial flight overseas. And I was like, good for them. Living the normal life. That's kind of wild. Yeah. Yeah, I hope they had to. Boston luggage baggage claim is egregious. I apologize to anybody who works there. I'm, I'm sure so there are circumstances beyond your control. But Boston, <laughs> my guess is baggage, they, they baggage don't claim. hang out waiting for their luggage. Probably not. Probably not. Anyway, but the car has to hang out. It takes so long. Yeah, I'm using my platform for something I'm passionate about. It is the system of baggage claims in Logan. But. Well, let's uh, bring. I'm glad we could bring awareness to that. All right, well, it's time for uh, learning some new behaviors. Uh, Let's get into it. So I feel like we're entering the time of our life. Maybe, Amanda, you agree with this, where people our age are like starting to get married or thinking about having kids. And I feel like a lot of that is still mysterious. And there's this mentality of, oh, we'll just like wait and see or we're trying. But we have the technology and the power to know, you know, what our bodies are doing if we're having any sort of fertility issues. One in eight couples struggles with infertility. And now we have tools from modern fertility to help us know what's going on with our bodies, know how to prep for things. Yeah. One of my best friends is experiencing um, fertility challenges. And it's, I feel it's like makes my heart break hearing about going to doctors and not getting answers and just how there's these long turnaround times where Mm -hmm. it's like to even understand the results of a test, the follow-up appointment isn't for months. It can be confusing. You have to like try to find different doctors and tests can be very, very expensive. But modern fertility is the opposite. So it's like easy. It's affordable. You can test your fertility hormones at home with a simple finger prick. Uh, You can mail it with a prepaid label. They've like literally taken out all of the legwork for you and you get your personalized results within six business days. Traditional hormone testing at a fertility clinic can cost over $600, but modern fertility tests the same general set of hormones for only $179. And if you go to modernfertility.com slash V-I-A-L-L, you can get $20 off your test. So then it becomes $159, which is a hell of a lot better than $600. Plus, you can get reimbursed uh, for the test through your FSA or HSA. So there's that that possibility yeah. too. Yeah. 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 So go. if you want kids today or maybe one day in the future, uh, clinically sound info about your body can help you make the decision that's right for you. Knowledge is power. It's always good to know. And you can do it very affordably from the comfort of your home. So check out Modern Fertility. Right now, Modern Fertility is offering our listeners $20 off the test when you go to modernfertility.com slash V-I-A-L-L. That means your test will cost $159, which is a fraction of what it costs at fertility clinics. Get $20 off your fertility test when you go to modernfertility.com slash V-I-A-L-L. That's modernfertility.com slash V-I-A-L-L. Maya, welcome back. Thanks so much for having me. Happy New Year. Happy New Year to you. How are you? (laughs) I'm doing okay. Doing okay. I somehow managed to not get sick over the holiday break, so I feel like that's a success. Wow. Yeah. 
I know. Go us, right? Round of applause. Right? For round of applause for you got sick, Ellie. Oh clap. my god. Yeah. Oh, sorry. It just yeah. felt like I was, was everywhere. For you. Clapping for me because yeah. <laughs> I wish I was you. I've had pretty good luck with that stuff. Uh, Were you that, around a lot of kids, though? I mean, I think that's the key. I was. Yeah, that's yeah, that's impressive. To not an get immune sick. system of steel. Yeah. I feel like I've always had a pretty <laughs> solid immune system. Yeah. Yay for me. Yay for you. Yeah. Good job, Nick. Do you usually now, get sick? Now or? everyone can resent you. Yeah. Uh, so far, so good. But again, I don't want to, you know, I don't want to jinx anything. So. Well, I mean, eventually we'll get sick I don't believe in jinxing, again. so. Yeah, we'll get sick okay. at some point. Yeah, definitely. Uh, well. <laughs> Every time I'm around my nephews, at least I, I get sick. Little boys. How old are they? <laughs> uh, so the oldest one is seven and then five and three. Okay. Oh, yeah. yeah. They're, they're carrying germ, germ some stuff carrier. around. Yeah. A lot of the, yeah, a lot of the schools. Yeah. Well, so great to have you back. It was always fun talking with you when we first had you on. And uh, I know you and I were texting and we thought, well, what a fun way to bring you back to talk about, you know, it's New Year's. People are always talking about New Year's resolutions. New it's Year, New a, You. New Year, New You. <laughs> and it seems like really good in theory, hard in practice type of 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 idea. Uh, we were talking uh, with our, our last guest, Heath, we were talking New Year's resolutions a little bit and how... It almost seems like New Year's resolutions are more just like what they really end up being is this like a list of things you're not good at, you know, mm. because it's just you just kind of like, well, I, I don't like this about me or I don't do this enough or I have to stop doing this. And we just kind of like identify it and usually it just kind of falls off a few months or you know, a few months, a few weeks later, a few months if we're lucky. Uh, but they don't really become new behaviors or new habits mm -hmm. that are, I think, are really required to make something a real part of our lives. And I thought it'd be fun to chat with you about how we might actually be able to do that. Because yes. you, you have a lot of conversations about this type of stuff in your work and with a, a lot of important people. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I myself gave up on making New Year's resolutions when I was younger because I was like, what's the point? And so then being trained as a behavioral scientist and actually studying the science of human behavior and motivation and decision making, it's actually changed my own. I mean, when I was texting you, right, I was like, Nick, this stuff is genuinely changed my own life. And I feel like I'm sticking to my goals more than I was before. And so I wanted to just share whatever's worked for me or what the research says. So we work. might we might be changing people's lives in this episode if we Well, can, in small ways, at least, I hope. Ways. But you know, the small ways add up to big ways. So Shavings make, Shavings make a pile. That's what we always say on this show. Yeah. All right. So uh, per your advice, let's figure out how to first identify how we should what, what things we should actually try to, what our goals are, what things we can work on, yeah. and then what we can do to help make those goals a reality. Yeah. So one thing that I've learned in, in studying the science is that it's super important to, to be thoughtful about the way in which you're defining your goals. In fact, a lot of the hard work's happening at the goal-defining stage, which is something we tend to overlook. We're just like, yeah, I want to get fitter or, you know, I want to eat healthily or whatever it is. Um, but we can- I want to be off my phone less. Yes, whatever. Yeah. They, yeah. But those goals seem so effortless and we're like, okay, I already know what my goals are. Now it's just a matter of executing. Um, but we know from research that the way that we frame our goals can have a big impact on motivation levels. So for example, you can frame a goal as an approach goal. So I want to eat healthier foods, or you can frame goals as avoidant goals, right? I want to avoid eating unhealthy foods. And these distinct frames can have a very different impact on motivation. And I would recommend that people experiment with them because some can work 
well or not well, depending on the domain, right? Like what area of life you're in. Um, but So there's it, not one that's necessarily better than the other. It depends on the person? It, it can depend on the person the and the activity. However, by and large, the approach goals are better and more motivating, and they lead to greater endurance and resilience and a greater sense of pride in having accomplished the thing. So I want to eat healthier is better than I want to avoid, avoid unhealthy sugar or whatever. Exactly. Yeah. And and you can understand why, right? So when you avoid doing something, it's really hard to measure success, right? As you're going through the day, you're like, how many times did I avoid picking up my phone and checking Instagram, right? It's not as measurable as actually creating a goal about the things you do want to do that are easy to quantify and easy to measure. So um, if you made your goal, oh, I want to take more steps during the day, that's actually something that you can quantify at the end of the day, right? Let's say that's a substitute behavior for picking up your phone. Okay, every time I pick up my phone, I'm actually just going to like walk around my kitchen once. Like a penance. <laughs> yeah, well, penance, substitution, you could call it either thing, but yes. Like like Catholic, 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 yeah. <laughs> But I'm wondering, I mean, I'm curious to know from the three of you if you've ever had this experience where when you were, when you had like an abstinence goal, right? Like I'm trying not to do something. Over time, you just kind of lose some of the motivation, right? Mm -hmm. It's just not as energizing as racing towards something, right? Feeling like there's actually a concrete set of actions. It also that you're abstaining from. It also then almost puts that on a pedestal. Definitely. You know, of, of like a cheat day. Yeah, you yeah. Know? Like if you abstain from something, then all of a sudden you have cheat days and then you glorify those cheat days as something you really enjoy. Almost. Like I, I made a resolution one year, no Girl Scout cookies and suddenly Thin Mints became the most delicious food yeah. on planet yeah. Earth. It was incredible. But that's, I mean, your point about um, like the cheat days, that's actually another important lesson for us is when we're thinking about how we define our goals, it's actually really important to build in some slack some get-out-of-jail-free cards. Because okay, so I those think are okay. those are good, actually. Because I think what happens is as we're approaching January 1st and we're, our, you know, we have our aspirational selves in the driver's seat and we're like, we're going to kick ass in 2023. I got all my goals covered. Um, we can be purists about our goals. It's like, I'm going to the gym every single day this year. And we all know that life happens and it's not actually possible to so purely execute on your goals. But when you build in what are called emergency reserves, so you say, okay, I'm going to go to the gym every day this month, except I'm giving myself five freebie days where, you know, if you're a parent, right, where if my kid's sick, you know, I have to be at home with them or, you know, maybe I'm just lazy one day and I just want a day off. That way, you can still feel that you can achieve your goal and you don't risk falling completely off the wagon, which is what we typically do when we um, when we create these really audacious goals where there's no wiggle room whatsoever. We have our first cheat day and we're like, all right, to hell with it. I'm done. Yeah, it's like I want to go to the gym every month, like you said, and all of a sudden you've missed two days in a row and it just feels like, well, what's the point? What's the point? I'm not going to reach my goal anyway. And, you know, we know, we know from research, I certainly have seen this in my own experience, that our goals are really tethered to our sense of self-identity. And so when you don't fulfill a goal, it's almost an indictment on who you are. It's like, wait a second, I thought that I was the kind of person who actually follows through on their goals. So it can be really discouraging when you do have those two cheat days or you do miss the gym two days to be like, darn it, this is kind of a threat to who I am or the kind of person that I want to be. And that's why building in those reserves can be really useful. That makes a lot of sense. So building things that you want to do better than things that you don't want to do, but n not necessarily, it's not always bad to say, like, you know, for example, like staying off your phone, very popular one, or eating less sugar. Yes. Is, is it just like, is it coming up with like 
well, instead of telling myself I want to be on my phone less, I'm going to uh, almost trick myself with an activity that's more productive than being on my, like every time I have this desire to go on my phone, I'm going to do something else. Yeah, is the, that, is the, that better than? The way that habits work, right, is that they're triggered by certain cues in our environment. And so what we want to do is associate whatever cue leads us to want to check our phone with something else. In fact, they've done research with people who are trying to quit smoking. And they found that find that a lot of the desire to smoke, I mean, of course, there's the physiological component, right? You're addicted to nicotine and you enjoy that, that experience. But is the habit of taking a break from work, going outside, being with your buddies, yeah. like, right? And so when they found a way to replace that particular smoking behavior with another behavior that still gives you that short break in the day, that still gives you that habit that feels nice and grounding and relaxing, they were much more likely to quit smoking. And so what we want to do is, or what I found really successful in my own life is to find substitute behaviors rather than saying, I don't want to do this thing. Because then you're just sitting there being like, don't do the thing. Don't do the yeah, thing. Don't do the thing. Yeah, yeah. And that's really, really hard. Um, but at the same time, why do we check Instagram? It's because like we're tired and we want a break and we want a distraction. Yeah, and like so a, just find something yeah. else. It's just a distraction, really. Um, yeah, yeah. It's yeah. just like something else to do and I want to check out or Yeah. Yeah. And by the way, like some online behaviors I think are just better than others. So I have taken to texting my friends more, like checking in on old friends when I'm feeling that way. And it's just like, oh, I just want to take a break or I want to relax for a bit. I, you know, I go and I just I'm like, oh, who who do I want to reach out to that I've lost touch with? And that feels slightly more nourishing than scrolling, you know, the discovery feed on Instagram, which is just endless. It's interesting. Yeah. I'm try, I'm now I'm trying to think about what habits I'm going to replace being on my phone with. Are there any specific habits that are better than others when you are trying to think of those types of replacement habits? Yeah. Like, are there ones that are more positive than others or there are certain types of things you want to look to do? Social connection is key. And so I actually think, and this is why I was talking maybe about texting is like maybe not being that bad because actually texting is a way of connecting with other people. It's a wonderful way of staving off loneliness and feeling like you do have a sense of community in this world and you do have people that you can um, commiserate with or share your feelings with. And so I think that the challenge with Instagram becomes when I, Maya, am in bed and I'm literally just passively scrolling through people's feeds. And there's nothing interactive about that. There's nothing that's actually forging connected between me and the other person, really. I mean, okay, sure, now I know sure. the beautiful view they had in Hawaii when they were on their wonderful vacation, but I don't feel closer to the person. So I think any habits, whether it's calling a friend, you know, write, like I started, hand, one of my New Year's resolutions this year is like handwrite more cards, like old school communication, right? So I have like a goal, I'm gonna like send my friends letters, which I haven't done in so long, right? So you can just find other ways of expressing that desire for, either, again, relaxation or, you know, just distraction. Yeah, I don't know if anyone could read my pen. <laughs> so work on your handwriting could be one, Nick. No, it could be. Kidding. Oh my yeah. gosh, can I please get you like the old like Kumon packages with like the little letters? I'm gonna I'm gonna That's give so funny, Nick a Alan. handwriting course. <laughs> I'll never do it. Okay. The the other really important thing we should think about when we're setting our goals is, and this is this touches back on the thing we were talking about before about our aspirational selves getting ahead of our real selves, is to try and define our goals when we're in the same physiological and psychological state as we'll be in when we're actually trying to execute on the goal. And so when it's 4 p.m. on a Sunday and Nick, you're like watching football, 
that's probably not a good time for you to be like, yep, I'm going to get up at 5.30 a.m. on every weekday and go to the gym because there's an empathy gap between your present moment self and, and your future self, right? And, and you're yeah. not empathizing what that future version of you is. So when you have gotten up at 5.30, let's say three days in a row, fine, I'm going to give you the rights to actually create that goal. But you really do want to approximate what your psychological and physical state is going to be like when you're in goal pursuit mode, because that makes it much more likely that you're actually going to achieve your goals. Empathy gap. like Empathy gap. <laughs> what, can we talk about that? sounded great. What is that just like a, is that a clinical term? Or, and, yeah, it's a term we use in, in in behavioral science research. But basically, we put a huge premium on current day Maya, right? Like current moment Maya. I'm like, I really value Maya right now. And when I think about the future, I discount. In fact, this is well corroborated in the research. I really discount future Maya. Like, I'm less concerned with how she turns out. I'm less concerned with what pain she suffers. But I really care about not suffering right now. And so a lot of the biases we have in our mind lead us to act in ways or make decisions that privilege our present selves, right? This is why we might procrastinate. It's like, well, you know, I really care right now that I don't suffer. But, oh, gosh, tomorrow, you know, when I was in college, right? Maya's going to have to write that term paper that she refuses to write right now. And so part of making smarter goals, part of being smarter about our decision-making is trying to actually envision what your future self is going to feel like <laughs> having been handed this, you know, in this case, non-gift from former self. It's also, I'm guessing, pl probably plays a role in why so many people, when they're having that, like, um, uh, break up or get back together fight and one person's promising to do better in the future or promising to change or making these wild claims of what they are willing to do in this relationship they're trying to save. But when they get to that future moment, it seems like such an unattainable goal. That That is so true and so well said. It's actually, it's bringing me back to my wedding day. This is what happens guys, when you're married to a behavioral scientist from the perspective of my husband, in his vows, he was talking about things that he was committing to. But then at the end, he said, I promise to try and build the habits of mind <laughs> that actually allow me to, to be this way. Uh, very no, no, you know, sure. knowledgeable of the fact that, yeah, it's one thing to state that, okay, I'm going to, I promise I'm going to change. I promise I'm going to be X or Y way. But in the same way that you go to the gym and you do pull-ups and push-ups and bicep curls to build strength, you have to actually cultivate uh, new patterns of thinking and new ways of thinking. How would a behavioral scientist write their wedding vows? Like, <laughs> I'm, because like now, were, that, yeah. now that I'm thinking about it, like wedding vows are so about like you're you're thinking about your future self, of yes. which you're not really empathizing with as much. I would. Is, is, yeah, is it my, safe my, to say that we never really fully empathize with our future selves as well as we're, we're able to empathize with our current selves? I think that's fair to say. Um, I mean, in part because there's so much uncertainty, too, about what the future will bring, but more importantly, how we will change, right? We rarely think about that. We think about us as being stable entities that are least, operating yeah, in this least. dynamic world, but our own preferences can change, right? The things that we value can change. The way that we feel about ourselves can change. All of that is very hard to take into account in present day. But on that note about the wedding stuff, I think um, I, we had very pragmatic vows. Like, they... I mean, I found them romantic because I felt like they were ge like genuinely trying to uh, ensure a long-term marriage, but I can imagine other people not. For example, you know, Jimmy and I, Jimmy's my husband, like we don't believe in unconditional love 
very much, right? Okay, so there are absolutely conditions on my willingness to love my husband and vice versa. If I were to change in some marked way where I suddenly was like mean to him all the time, it doesn't matter that I am the same quote person. I'm not actually the same person um, because my behaviors have radically changed and that should change, in fact, how he feels about me. I've always argued, I think pragmatism is romantic. I think. (laughs) Oh, thanks, Nick. I I feel better. (laughs) Well, because I think it's, it's just more honest and real. And yeah. if you're willing to kind of face that realism and then still choose to m- find romance in that and build a romance, I think it's it's a lot more romantic because it's harder than just simply saying we're destined to f- fate or yeah. I'll always feel this way or I'll love you mo- no matter what. It's just like, well, if you love me no matter what, then I don't really do anything. <laughs> yeah, I don't have to work hard. I don't have to work hard. Yeah, I don't to have be to a hold myself person. accountable. Totally. I don't have to earn your love day in and day out. And I, I find that all to be very romantic to have to, to earn that. Uh, on a on a continued basis, yeah. uh, I still I still remember. This is so funny. You're really bringing me back to 2016. <laughs> but I remember writing the last paragraph of my my vows, and at one point I said, like you know, with with a family and community like the one that's here today, I I really feel that we can get through anything. And then I cr- I, I like scratched that out. I was like, no, I don't. I don't actually think we could get through anything. And I changed it to, you know, hopefully it'll help us beat the odds. <laughs> And so again, it's all it's all very pragmatic, but I think I've been yeah, mindful of I'm mindful of the Your ways that we are going to be like this, Nick. Like I'm thinking <laughs> about this. I'm like you're going to be calling Maya and saying, "Okay, can you help me write these?" I I think deep down I I'd, I'd probably want that, but I, I I'm not going to be marrying a behavioral scientist, <laughs> so I might Yeah, I might, you might want to be a little I bit more I might gloss it up yeah. a little bit, okay. yeah. you know, just uh <laughs> Just for the sake of, and again, there the were there, there were sweet yeah. moments. It's just that you know we were very we were measured in the way that we committed yeah, to each I'll other because I think that's really both, yeah right. I, I just yeah I, I feel like we should we should give more credit to that type of thought process. And I and I I sincerely think it is more romantic than just saying kind of these profound things without anything really behind it or. Mm-hmm. Or plan of how we're going to make this work. Yeah. So, yeah. death do us part. Yeah. And when you don't think things are destined, then you really do have to work every day to be the best version of yourself, to try to earn the respect and love and compassion of the, of the people that you surround yourself with, not just in your romantic relationships, but in any relationship, right? You need to feel like they're, you're at least aspiring to be a good version of yourself versus taking for granted, because especially with the people we're closest to, right? We can take them for granted. I've often, so early on in, in my relationship with Jimmy, we talked about the fact that it was going to be very easy for us to desensitize to our good fortune and having met each other because that's just how humans are. We just get used to good things. We also get used to bad things, but a lot slower than we get used to good things. We desensitize to good fortune effortlessly. And so we implemented at the beginning of our relationship a gratitude exercise where at the end of every day, we just shared a moment that we were so happy to have shared with the other person or something that we really liked or loved about the other person because we wanted to stave off that desensitization process, I guess, and, and make it so that we were constantly reminded of our of our luck. So when you say desensitize to good things, are you talking about like flying first class and then having an almost like getting used to that good thing so quickly? Yeah, I think when we have a good thing happen to us or something good happens in our lives, I feel like what happens is it so easily becomes the new status quo. It becomes business as usual. 
Yeah. Right. I mean, the first time I ever flew on a business class flight, uh, this was for a work trip. I was like, oh, my God, this is blowing my mind. Yeah, amazing. Right. Especially if work is paying for it. You know, it's just a little less exciting than it was like the first few times. Right. Because that's just how that's just how we work. We we habituate. Right. We become used to to the norm. And that's why they say, actually, in, in behavioral science research that when it comes to day to day happiness, we're much more affected by, say, the length of our commute, which we know actively makes people unhappy, than we are by how beautiful the interior of our home is. So it's much smarter to get a slightly less nice place that's closer to your workplace where you can actually walk to work every day than it is to have a beautiful mansion somewhere and have a 45-minute commute in L.A. traffic in order to get to your, to your job. Because those are the things we don't habituate to. But we do habituate to the nice house. We habituate to the to the nice thing that just becomes normal. But even just like I'm thinking relationships too. Like like I love that that uh, that gratitude exercise because that idea of, I think that's where a lot of uh, people struggle after like the honeymoon phase mm -hmm. is this expectation of how their relationship is supposed to feel without really having to do any of the work because it just, well, it was so exciting and great. And we get, and that becomes the standard of how it should be without the effort, so to speak. Yeah. And, and you know, I, I wonder, I'm just thinking in this moment, whether I benefited from growing up in a family where my parents did have an arranged marriage. So I'm of, of Indian descent and my parents, you know, they were given a choice, but they met on January 1st. And then they got married on January 21st. So they were asked to decide whether or not they wanted to get engaged on the very day they met. And then they got married 20 days later. What a choice. <laughs> we'll let you choose. Yeah. But, but they decide do, today. You know, a lot of people, though, they show up to the altar. There's no choice, right? So I, I do, it is important to differentiate um, that that they had a choice in the matter. But they, they got married. And the, the whole approach to marriage is so different when you're coming from that kind of tradition, right? And um, I, I think it's it's... It's like sobering. I don't know. You just grow up with a very realistic understanding of what's involved in two people living in harmony <laughs> over over the course of their lives. And so I, I just wonder whether that maybe is has that affected why, me. I mean, because I've heard this a lot that arranged marriages have a surprisingly good track record. Yeah, I think um, it's about expectations. Yeah. I don't think mm -hmm. it's about the nature of the relationship. I think it's about the expectations we go into that union with, right? Am I expecting fireworks every day for the first 10 years? And then do I have a midlife crisis when all of a sudden the fireworks go away? Or do I anticipate that this is something, this is a love I'm actually trying to cultivate and build with my partner? Now, again, in my case, I was really lucky. I fell in love with my husband. He fell in love with me. And so we, you know, we we had that as like a, a we were almost at a better starting point, let's say. But yeah, I do think that that kind of daily in, intentionality uh, when it comes to relationships is really helpful. Empathy gap. Empathy gap. I really like that. <laughs> yeah. Um, I was wondering if, you know, from a behavioral science yeah. standpoint, like how you might be able to categorize behavior and know whether it falls into the category of, okay, this is just the fireworks dying down. It's not as glamorous as it was at the beginning, but we can ultimately navigate and overcome this versus yeah. behavior that might be indicative of a more fundamental change in someone. I think at the end of the day, um, Patience is really helpful when you're first running up against some of those feelings like, oh, the fireworks or we're fighting a little bit more. I think it's easy to just want to 
jump ship, at least in your mind, you start checking out because you're freaked out, right? You're like, oh my gosh, this is really alarming because I love this person. I loved this person. And now suddenly the dynamic feels totally off. And because our behaviors and our moods and the way that we feel about others can be so influenced by our environments, our hormonal states, right? Depending on, you know, where someone is in the course of even a day and, and what how their hormones are, are operating can affect the way that you feel about others. If you go on The Bachelor and you're denied all access to the outside world, it can definitely amp up how much you think you like other people. I think it's really helpful to allow more time to pass where you're in a more diverse set of environments. You have a more diverse set of mood states and you really pressure test um, whether there's an underlying, you know, fundamental problem or whether you, this is actually something that is more like a current, right, that can pass. And I don't want to discourage people from leaving, you know, truly toxic or harmful relationships, right? We we tend to have a bias towards the status quo, towards quitting uh, in general, and certainly quitting relationships is something that's really hard for us, in part because we don't really think about the opportunity costs of the fact we're in a relationship and that we could actually be dating someone else. We could actually be spending that time doing something else. Um, and so there's a huge body of literature. There's actually an episode on my uh, podcast, A Slight Change of Plans, called The Science of Quitting. It is the most popular episode we've ever had. <laughs> and she talks about it in the context of relationships. She talks about it in the context of lo- lots of parts of li- life where there's so much virtue in like grit and perseverance and staying the course and being able to say, I've been married for 40 years. But there's a lot of virtue in actually choosing to exit a relationship and choosing to yeah. quit something, right? And so it's it's important that there's a balance there, right? I'm not I'm not certainly not advocating for people staying in in a relationship that's well, unhealthy, I, and that's why Amanda's question is so good. I told uh, I told a sibling I was he's going through. He has a big decision to make in his career, mm-hmm. and it's a it's a decision that could affect him for a very long time, just based on the career he has, and I. And I just, and I was talking to him and I just said, if on your, you know, if your reason to stay, if your reason to do, well, if your reason to stay in this current situation rather than explore a different opportunity, if like, if, if on your top three reasons is how much you've already invested or how much work you've done or how much time has passed in this, in this current situation, if that's on your top two or three, that's a huge red flag. See, Nick, the behavioral scientist, right? That's that's what we call sunk so cost. So I got that right. Yeah, yeah that's yeah, what sunk, we call sunk, sunk yeah. cost fallacy, right? So we really overweight the prior investments we've made in something. Even though at the end of the day, really, do I want to torture myself for five more years just because I was already in a relationship for four years? Or do I want to wipe the, cl- the slate clean potentially and, a, and find a healthier from a relationship? Behavioral, like, what's the science behind why we do that? Like, why are we so willing to... Um, have the perspective of a new and exciting opportunity. You know, why are we so prone to like hang on to something, even mm. if it was a struggle, even if we wake up every day and I was like, oh, do I really want to show up to this place? Or do I even like the people? Or if yep. I'm in a relationship, it's like, oh, I'm tired of fighting. Why, why can't we just wipe the slate clean and just say, oh, I've learned so much from all these ups and downs, and now I'm set up for such much more success. But we are so like it, that's not our norm. Yes. Like if if you can get if you are that person who can do that, you've had to really teach yourself to have <laughs> that perspective, and then remind yourself when presented with a situation, be like, oh yes, you're right. 
I need to not do that. Like, what's the science behind why our brains work that way? Yes, there's at least two reasons why we're like that. The first is that we like to think that we're good decision makers. It's a huge part of our identity to feel like we made good choices uh, in the past and present. And so when we're admitting to ourselves that we may have chosen the wrong spouse, that maybe we went against our friend's advice or a parent's advice or whatever it was, that's a big blow to the ego, right? You can feel pretty defeated by that. But what I want to remind people of is that you may very well have made a great decision at that time, given the information you had and given how things were. People change over time, and we don't account for that when it comes to our egos and decision-making, right? It could, you, you might support a politician, let's say, and then three years later, they do something really stupid, right? Yeah. You didn't know they were going to do the really stupid thing, so you were totally rational. You were a good decision-maker in supporting that person, right? Or admiring an actor or whatever it is, right? And so... One antagonist for whatever shame you might feel in having made a bad decision is don't forget you changed and your partner changed in some way, or the world changed in some way, or your boss changed, changed. like anyone changed. And so it's not necessarily an indictment. Now, maybe you did make a shitty decision, in which case you should just learn from that experience, but it could also very well be the case that you didn't make a shitty decision. You actually made a great decision based on, again, the information you had at the time. The second reason is that when we pour a lot of effort and energy into something, when we invest a lot in something, it signals to our brain that we really care about that thing, and that thing is valuable. In this case, it might be a relationship, it might be a job that you have. It might be, I don't know, the the bounty of things that we care about in our lives. And so it's really hard in a moment to say, oh, this thing that I really care about, no, nope, I'm not doing it anymore. Oh, I'm out, right? That's hard for our brains to, to reckon with because it breeds a lot of cognitive dissonance to feel like this thing you poured so much energy and effort into was for naught. Yeah. If only we could take that mindset and apply it to like goal settings when we're trying to have new behaviors. (laughs) If only, right? I mean, if you just had, yeah. Some of our, we're so willing to like (laughs) stubbornly stay in things. And then we're also so reluctant to like try to change, you know, new behaviors. But that if we could take that stubbornness and apply it to things that, you know, even things we say we want to do, but haven't done yet. Yeah. And and I should also say, I should caveat that the research is complex, right? So there's never going to be a one-size-fits-all. This is what Nick should do every single day. This is what Amanda should do every day. Allie, this is your recipe. Instead, we have to be experimental. But what I've tried to do on my my show is, and Nick, you know this, but I, it's, it's part storytelling of people's personal life stories about change and then part science. So if people scroll through the feed of A Slight Change of Plans, any episode that starts with the science of will be a deep dive into that topic. So we have an episode, for example, on the science of regret and all the mistakes we make about how we think about regret and how we can reframe our relationship with regret so it's more positive. We have an episode called The Science of Loneliness, where we talk about all the things that can make us lonely and the the health threats that loneliness can have and what we can do about that. We have um, episodes on the science of motivation, the science of behavior change, the science of mindset change. And if you listen to those, you'll get a deeper dive on each of the things that I'm talking about so that you can actually try and prescribe for yourself a different set of um, plans depending on what it is you're trying to achieve. I'm curious if, um, I think one New Year's resolution that a friend had and that I've noticed with a lot of people who I'm close to is integrating more creativity into their lives, particularly because I come from a background with a lot of people who might have like (laughs) done improv in college and then don't get to do it anymore, who played the instrument every single day and then with the rigors of work sort of fell off the wagon. And I'm curious if you have any insight into specific with like creative endeavors and tapping back into the more like artistic side of oneself (laughs) 
of how someone can go about like reintegrating that back into life. Oh, I, I think that's so lovely. And I, I haven't heard someone commit to that. And I think that's such a wonderful goal. I would make it concrete and, and tactical um, because that's the important part of the translation problem we sometimes face, which is I'm going to be more creative. Let me be creative by scrolling Instagram, <laughs> right? So it, you have to make sure you're mapping it to a concrete set of goals. But I will say in my personal life, you know, when I was when I was a child, I was a concert violinist. I was an aspiring concert violinist. Um, I studied at the Juilliard School in New York, and I was on the speed train to hopefully becoming a, a professional violinist in my future. And then a attendant tear ended my career overnight. It was a complicated medical saga that ensued from there. And then I became a scientist, right? I got my PhD in cognitive science, behavioral science, which was a completely different sphere than being in the arts. And I really craved stimulation in that part of my brain, right? I mean, obviously there's creativity when it comes to science, but it felt so different from the kind of creativity mm -hmm. I was using as a musician. And it was only two years ago, actually, when I started a slight change of plans that I feel like I've been able to tap back into that kind of artistic creativity again. Because I, first of all, I picked up my violin again after decades and I played some of the soundtrack for, for some of the show, which is really fun. Right. But more importantly, you know, Nick, you, you and I were talking about this before we started recording and being an executive producer of the show and actually thinking about the story structure of the show. It's a kind of creativity that I didn't get to use before. And it is so satisfying. Like it, it, it nourishes me in a way that I've not been able to nourish my through the lens of, of being a scientist. And so, yeah, you just you just filled me with delight, actually, in, in sharing that because I think that's such a wonderful, that's such a wonderful resolution for people to have. I feel that way with, like, I was always, I wanted to be a, a cartoonist when I was a kid. And then oh, got, in, got into, you know, business school. And then having coming, coming out to LA and doing all this stuff. Yeah, same thing. It's just like, I, I felt like I started tapping into the creative things I was good at or liked that I just, dropped for like 15 years. Yeah. So it's, it's and it's always, always possible to reclaim because I think I really believed, I mean, I'm 37 now. So I, I remember believing, okay, my time in the artistic sun is over, right? Like there's, what, what was I possibly going to discover midlife, right? That, or I don't know, it's midlife yet. Gosh, Maya, don't age yourself unnecessarily. But you know what I mean? It's hard to think that some somehow like artistic things will fall from the sky, but it's, it's truly been like the greatest blessing in my adult life to have discovered this podcast and to be able to have this, this artistic outlook. Uh, on the flip side of that, though, yeah, with goal setting, yes, I feel like sometimes, you know, using Amanda's example, I think there's a lot of people who have a genuine goal, you know, or maybe had a creative interest, got away from it, and want to do that. But then I think there's other goals that maybe we like the idea of it more than we actually like it. It's like, oh, I want to, I want to paint more because like the thought of me being a painter sounds cool, or, you know. I'm, <laughs> Totally. Whatever it is, you know? Yeah. And then we try. We want it. to have that identity. We yeah. But like, we don't actually enjoy the day-to-day. -day. Exactly. Yeah. So how do we stop ourselves from falling trap to setting goals that maybe even deep down we don't really have a passion for, but we like the idea of us accomplishing that goal? Yeah. I was reading a, a behavior change book the other day, and it was talking about how important it is to tolerate boredom uh, when it comes to pursuit. So we think a lot about like, you have to get motivated and amped up if you want to achieve this goal. But actually, a large part of what it takes to become, say, an endurance athlete or an amazing singer-songwriter is just doing that gritty practice all day, every the day. The rule of 10,000 right? hours kind of thing. And 
yeah, though, I mean, I know Malcolm Gladwell runs the production company where I create a slight change of plans, but the 10,000 hour rule, rule is up for debate. But it yes, is. deliberate, yes. But deliberate practice is very important, very intentional focused practice. And so what I've realized is that grit is not, does not transfer across domains. At least it hasn't in my life. So when I was a violinist, I was gritty as all hell. I mean, I would be like a 12 year old in a practice room for hours. Like I would practice five hours a day in the summer. When I got to my postdoc and I was studying cognitive neuroscience and I was putting people in brain scanners, like could not do it, did not have grit, like hated it, wanted out from my windowless lab. And then with podcasting, again, I find that I'm willing to do a lot of the boring, gritty stuff because I love it enough. So you have to pressure test these goals you have to make sure that you're willing to to tolerate the boredom, that's going to constitute a sizable part of the goal pursuit. And of course, you can enjoy the 20% joy of like it being a cool thing to do. Being a painter is like a cool thing to say to people do. But are you willing to learn all that painstaking technique in order to become the great painter? You need to test it out and see if you have it in you. Yeah. all All the little things that go into, you know, becoming a painter or getting the equipment or you know, yeah. all the behind the scenes, like I remember, so, so to speak. Um, watching some interview with Taylor Swift from a long time ago where she was basically saying like, you know that I'm like seven, I don't know what the exact interview was, but it was something along the lines of like, you know that I'm like at least 70% businesswoman day to day. Like the actual job that I have day to day is not actually being a singer songwriter. It's like running a business for myself. Yeah. And I think that's true for, you know, almost Almost everything that anyone has ever been good at has involved a lot of very unglamorous work behind the scenes. And so you just have to be willing to take that on. Yeah. And I think on some level you have to maybe not enjoy every day to day, but you enjoy it because what 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 it's accomplishing, Mm -hmm. like what it's behind. You mentioned the podcasting. I feel the same way about this show. Like there's a lot of things about making the show. It's like, you know, like, (laughs) exactly. But I always enjoy it because of why like what it's accomplishing and what it's what it's working towards. It reminds me of those like very cheesy motivational posters and like the the iceberg one where it's like what people see versus what people doesn't <laughs> see and like majority's under the water so they don't know like what goes into it. Yeah. But yeah. 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 I I think that's right. I also think though, you know, so Nick, you described something where we want to commit to a goal like painting, let's say, because it sounds really cool, but we actually don't really want to be a painter. I I want to also make sure though that people's self-identities don't hold them back from pursuing new things. Because I think sometimes we, you know, we have a very strong identity and we don't want to take the risk of exploring new terrain. We're worried we might fail. Which I I think is a very popular topic on this show of people calling in. There's, you know, you know, you get to that point in life. It's whether you're, it's kind of like right around 25, 30. I think it's like between 25 and 35 where you spent most of your early 20s or whatever, like living up to the expectations you said as a teenager, your parents. And then you kind of figure out a lot of people like, I don't like what I do or it's fine. But these other dreams they set aside, maybe it's people because they had, you know, kids early on and now they're at a place where they have a little more freedom or maybe they got out of a relationship. There's all these things that make them want to try new things, but they feel very reluctant to do for a variety of different reasons. And there's just a lot of fear 
of of trying that new thing. Absolutely. I think we need to see our identities, our self-identities as these malleable dynamic constructs. We we tend to have a fixed sense of self. In my own life, I was mentioning to you, right? I'm like the 15-year-old who's dreaming to be a concert violinist and then overnight my career ends. And so a malleable identity in many ways was forced upon me, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I had to be like, oh crap, what do I do next? And I wonder if this is helpful for people who are going through a change, an unwanted change, let's say, and they're trying to figure out how to maintain a stable identity throughout. Because I think one thing that throws us off in the face of change is that it can threaten our sense of self-identity, right? Or it can push us beyond the limits of what we feel comfortable, uh, the identity space we feel comfortable occupying. Um, And that is, instead of attaching my identity to any given pursuit, like the violin, or you can imagine like being a teacher or being a podcaster, I have tried to... Uh, attach my identity to the particular traits and features that underlie that pursuit that really make me tick. And so when I think about my time as a violinist, the stuff that really lit me up was the idea that I could emotionally connect with people, right? I could forge this incredible emotional connection with strangers as a kid, right? You go on stage, you're playing in front of thousands of strangers, and you could potentially make them feel something they've never felt before. And then when the violin... When, I, when, it, when it left my life, right, against my will, I could then have a through line. I could say, okay, the violin's gone. And by the way, this took me a long time to figure out. So it's not like I was having these thoughts as a 15-year-old. This was like 30s thoughts. But I'm hoping it can, other people can fast track their, their Meyer process and hopefully get there faster. But when I realized, oh, it's human connection that makes me tick, I was able to then find that in other pursuits even though the violin was no longer available mm-hmm. to me. So when I think about the work that I did in the White House, it was a lot of, all of it was actually about understanding the human mind and, you know, what policies and programs could better help people who are leaving prison or who are coming back from war or, you know, of varied psychological states. And then with my podcast, A Slight Change of Plans, like, this is, again, me and my human connection element, right? So I, it's a completely different sphere than music, and it's a, it's totally different medium. Everything's different. But that underlying seed of a desire to understand how people work, to understand what makes them tick, to understand what motivates them and drives them and how they heal from trauma and pain and sorrow, whatever it is, that's still present uh, in my day-to-day work. So I, I would urge people who are listening, who are going through a change or want to inspire change in their lives, try to figure out, okay, what's that through line? What's the one thing about yourself that you're really passionate about that you can hold constant, even when the manifestation of that thing is different? If someone has a partner who's trying to make a change, is there anything that you can speak to in terms of the way that you can support someone who's going through that Mm -hmm. identity and soul searching? Because it seems so personal and intimate. And yet I think there's, as someone who's very impacted by a partner's identity and also who has this unique vantage point and being able to potentially help, um, I'm curious like how you think folks might be able to navigate that. Yeah, it's, a, again, such a great question. I would say um, try to leverage the power of what's called a fresh start. So there, there's a thing called a fresh start effect in behavioral science. And it basically says we are much more likely to commit to new goals, to commit to new ways of being, new ways of behaving at these departures from the past, at fresh starts. So this could be the New Year's, right? So again, I used to not even set resolutions, but I realized I was missing out on the opportunity to capitalize on a fresh start, which is New Year's Day. It could be when you move from one city to the next. I mean, Nick, you were talking about Mm -hmm. moving to LA and then maybe that emboldened you to to start anew. And I was listening to your episode with Susie and like Susie's going to be moving to LA and she might introduce a whole new way way of life, right? And so what- makes a lot of sense. What these big changes, these like, 
what can be earth-shattering changes, right? Moving to a new place, getting married, having children, um, upending your life in any way. What it can do is it can break you free from old patterns of behavior, old habits of mind, even old physical structures that influence your day-to-day. So, you know, every day on your walk home, you pass by the burrito shop, let's say, and like, now the burrito shop's not there. Okay, time to introduce a new habit. But in even a a deeper way, which is, okay, I have this sense of self-identity, but in some small way, I'm wiping the the slate clean when I depart from my past and I try to become this new person. And that's when our brains are especially ripe for behavior change, for mindset change. Um, So if you have a partner who's really striving uh, to make a change and you want to be supportive, encourage them to think about upcoming fresh starts (laughs) that they can use to to try to give themselves like a a kick, you know, a step up when it comes to motivation. Is there ever a time where you could set a goal for a partner? Or do they have to come up with it for themselves? Yeah, there is research showing that we're much better at achieving our goals and we're much more motivated when we set our own goals. And granted, a lot of us don't have that freedom, right? I mean, Nick, you basically work for yourself. So like, lucky you, you actually do get to set (laughs) your goals. But a lot of us have employers and we're told what we have to do or, you know, we're struggling because, you know, there is some fixedness in our environment. But we can always try to find entry points, even within that structure, for us to assert agency and control. So let's say you work out with a personal trainer, right? Or you have a fitness coach of some kind. That's great. I'm encouraging you to have the trainer who prescribes a great routine for you every day, but have them give you some options. So on, in any given workout, it can be like, okay, today you get to choose, like you're going you know, hardcore on squats or deadlifts or whatever the option set is, right? And just giving people the ability to choose from among options makes them feel like they're in the driver's seat. They feel more ownership over their goals and they're much more likely to actually complete them. So wherever possible, you want to yeah. make sure that people are articulating goals for themselves. What about a couple that's been together for a long mm-hmm. period of time and they want to, the, the mutual goal of the couple who is they're creatures of habit even yeah but they want to find that spark you know or they want to introduce chemistry or they want to improve their sex life whatever it is that you know the goal is to like get away from like this the staleness of their relationship yeah but they are together they don't feel like they're doing anything new mm-hmm. you know what would how could you recommend like new behaviors that one might entice them to make it easier to accomplish this goal of like that freshness. Yeah, that yeah. freshness yeah, or, yeah, yeah. or going out of the way to, you know, these, you know, date night ideas or whatever yeah. it is. How what's that mindset that would be beneficial to keep them on track? So I think what sabotages us in situations like this is that we feel that it needs to be an escape to Europe <laughs> or bust, sure. right? And again, not everyone like Greg and Victoria, Victoria yeah. <laughs> get to go. They went quite often. Were they in Rome or something? I can't (laughs) remember what city they were in. Okay, so some some people among us get to do really fancy pants things. But for the rest of us, it's like, okay, we've got our jobs and we have like, let's say, a dog at home, and we just have we're limited in our ability to do that. Really small novel experiences can go a long way. And I mean going out for a movie night, going to a restaurant you've never been to, taking a different walking path on your, say, evening walk, engaging in activity together, right? Like, okay, you know, I'm not into pottery. I don't even like painting. We're just going to do this like one time, one hour painting class together. As long as there's novelty, it helps break us from, again, any patterns that we have in our day-to-day relationships. And it also helps see new aspects of the person that we're with. 
right? So I might see a part of my husband emerge in a pottery class that, and this guy does not like pottery, by the way, like he would, he's not super into artsy stuff, but there might be some aspect of his personality that I've never tapped yeah. into because we've never been in an environment like that. So I, I almost feel like the smaller the budget, the better, because then it's a more sustainable commitment where you're carving out a small amount of time. And again, you just need some novelty. And during COVID, you, we had to get really creative with novelty, right? Because we were all locked in our homes. But you you find ways to introduce that kind of those fresh new experiences. And ideally, you're finding things that both of you have never experienced before. I was going to ask that. I was yeah. like, does it need to be both of you? Because or yeah, or. Um, something that one of you is really, really passionate about and the other person has never found a passion for. Mm. And you just say, look, just give me the treat tonight of me exposing you to my world. Like, mm. I know you don't get it. I know you don't appreciate, let's say, I don't know, classical music or hiking or scuba diving or whatever the thing is. But just like give me my one shot. And you, you can find, you know, there's going to be a lot of bonding through that experience because at a minimum, the person will learn mm -hmm. why you love it, Allie, yeah. right? Like what, why you get so excited about it. And that's, that brings people together. Yeah. Yeah. The newness of things really, I mean, <clears throat> well, I, I was going to ask you, Nally and I are both creatures of habit, which in a lot of ways we love in the sense that we, thankfully we like a lot of the same things Yeah, and we're able to do that over and over. I'm curious about like creatures of habit and and like the pros and cons to the, that type of behavior. But like the other night I was like on TikTok and I've been like big on food TikTok lately. Mm -hmm. And so finally I was like, oh, I'm, I need to try, I like to cook, I need to start trying these. And I made this new chicken dish. <laughs> it was delightful. And just the fact that like, it was this new, a new thing we both liked and we introduced it into our like food rotation, mm -hmm. both like gave us a sense of like wonder and excitement. It's like, ooh, something, knew we we're going to eat on a regular basis that because before it was like we will make fun of ourselves because like what do we want for dinner and then we kind of always go back to our our the same five or six options and just knowing that we have something new, new. yeah was exciting and enjoyable and that alone like made that night like exciting Ex exactly you you're, you're you're almost building your repertoire of yeah. things that you can pull from and it's kind of crazy just, yeah. just that little thing but i do i am curious about as a creature of habit. Yeah. I'm also a creature of habit, by yeah. the way. And okay. so I really relate to you. And it is so easy for us to just revert to our normal day-to-day -day habits. But I mean, I'm just thinking about one experience I had recently where my my husband plays competitive squash. So he'll like travel for, sorry, not as his profession, just as he's an amateur competitive squash player. So he travels for tournaments. He's so passionate about playing squash. This is like, when we signed our marriage contract, it was like, I knew number one was squash and number two was going to be me. Like that was, that was well established. And so I don't know how, I don't, I don't play racket sports. I've never been good at this stuff. I've occasionally gone to a squash court with him and like tried and I've sucked at it. But we were at a birthday party a couple weeks ago and they were playing pickleball. And like pickleball is like, easier for someone who's never played a racket sport to actually like try to do. And Jimmy was stunned because I was like, yeah, I want to try playing pickleball. And this was the sort of thing I think a couple years ago, I would never have been eager to try. I would just been like, whatever, that's not going to be a part of my long-term future. And again, I'm a creature of habit, so I'm going to stand by the food and eat my food. <laughs> and that's where my passion lies. But it was such a fun experience for us to play on the same team. Jimmy was really excited by the idea. Maybe this was something we could actually do as a couple in the future, right? And I'm so grateful that I, again, this is, again, such a small thing, right? So I'm not talking about the Elizabeth Gilbert, like, eat, pray, love, travel around the world type of novelty. I'm literally talking about going to a birthday party and like 
maybe they're playing badminton or maybe they're playing charades or whatever it is and just participating in those activities. Yeah. It's a memory for us in the same way that cooking that chicken dish. Yeah. It's not a huge deal. But you and Natalie like, view ah, that as a really sweet you know, memory new. you have. Yeah. yeah. And especially when it comes to being in a relationship and there's just a lot of redundancy and familiarity and same doing the same things over and over, which are valuable, you know, because there's consistency and you know what to expect, but it is nice to just mix it up. You yes, know? exactly. Um, and I think, you know, in part, this new, what I'll call zest for life, like an eagerness to try new experiences emerged from. So I was mentioning that um, one of the interviews I did on a slight change of plans was around regret. And like regret is this like icky stomach churning feeling that we hate feeling. I mean, we try to stave off feelings of regret all the time. I mean, how many times day to day are we making decisions because we think to ourselves, oh, I'm going to regret if I don't do this thing, right? So it's a very, very powerful force. And what the research shows is that when we're in our 20s and 30s, we tend to equally regret things that we have done as we do things that we have not done, right? So those are in like equal proportions. But after we turn 50 and we look back on our lives, we are far more likely to regret the things we did not do than the things that we did do. And that's an interesting turning point if you're trying to, again, build bridge that empathy gap between you and your future self. If you want to try to minimize the regret that 50-year-old Nick experiences, you just want to do more things. Um, because chances are you're not really going to regret having done the thing. You will regret not having done the thing. Yeah, I, I don't know where that comes from. I think it's, for me, I feel fortunate to have bridged that empathy gap. And I think it's because I've experienced from like what for me was a lot of disappointment or sadness mm. or, you know, just, you just, yeah. And a lot of that was this heartbreak at the time, but like I, until I was able to experience and have moments in my life where I at least felt like I was at rock bottom, whether I actually was or not, but just yeah. the, the, my perspective was like a rock bottom and I overcame it. Like that allowed me to recognize that failure isn't that big of a deal mm -hmm. or disappointment is fine or rejection or regret, you know? And then that's, you know, it's like when people ask about regrets, it's like, well, sure. I mean, yeah, I can nitpick choices I've made that didn't work out the way I hoped, but now I've learned from them. So yes. that's when you have the kind of no regrets kind of mentality, but there's a lot of truth to that because you just have the perspective of recognizing, like you would just rather be that, it's like, it's me knowing that I'm going to be 50 and 60 and 70 and I want to look back and 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 be proud of the things I said yes to mm -hmm. more than disappointed in the things I didn't try. And and I think it's having felt that failure mm -hmm. at times that and it's like, like a chicken before the egg because until you actually try and fail, you won't have that confidence or that lesson to know that you should try more things even after you failed. Yeah, it's like it's, failing gave me the confidence to fail more. Yes, yes. I, I so resonate with that. And that's certainly been the case in my life. And it's exactly as you said. I mean, regret teaches us what we care about. We don't regret things if we don't care about those things, yeah. right? Or if we don't care that we, if we didn't have certain values, right? We didn't privilege certain things. If we didn't have certain dreams or goals. We wouldn't have regrets. And so regret can actually be a really instructive emotion. It's not one necessarily we should run away from. If we do the hard work, like it seems like you've done, Nick, where you sit in your regret for a bit and you realize, okay, first of all, this is not as scary as I thought. I'm not as concerned as, you know, I thought I would be. Um, but two, I can learn something from this that can make me, help me make better decisions in the future. It can actually be a good friend of yours. Like regret can be a very <laughs> helpful advisor as you live your life. Yeah, I, I, that's... I like, I like that. A good friend. Regret is your friend. <laughs> or can be. 
Can be, yeah. uh, this has been all great. Before we get to texting office hours, what's just any final thoughts around new habits, new behaviors as uh, for people who want to uh, obtain some of these new goals for yeah. the new year? Okay, so there's one that I learned um, from a friend of mine, Katie Milkman. She's a professor of behavioral science, and it's called temptation bundling. And all this requires is pairing an undesirable activity with a desirable activity. So folding laundry would be an undesirable activity, or for some people, working out would be undesirable, or, you know, walking in the morning would be undesirable. You want to pair it with something that you find immediately rewarding. Um, So that might be your favorite Netflix show. That might be a podcast that you're really excited to listen to. And you need to save this content for only those times where you're doing the undesirable activity. So you have to deny yourself the pleasure of listening to your favorite pop song, your favorite podcast, your favorite TV show outside of the environment in which you're working towards that specific goal. And this has been a game changer for me. Like I I will save my favorite. So I saved, Nick, I saved the Greg Victoria episode for like a really hard workout that, that I was doing because I wanted to be, I wanted to be really immersed in something else while I was doing this really hard strength training workout. So I actually saved it. I remember I saved it for that Saturday and I like tried to avoid any spoilers um, in advance. So I I li- literally like in my podcast feed, in my Netflix feed. So the the thing recently, like I just finished watching, um, is it Harry and Meghan or Meghan and Harry? Harry and Meghan, right? The documentary. Um, it's like only when you're doing like incline treadmill, can you watch this show? Yeah. Just, like, I, I did the exact like same yeah. thing. That, <laughs> and I, I mean, looked uh, forward. My 12, 330 with kinda, Harry and Meghan. Yeah. yeah. I looked forward to getting on the treadmill because I, I was like, I, Hello Deck. Yeah, like, it's I'm like, like, I need yeah, to I know <laughs> what happens to Megan. I need yeah. to know what happens to Megan. But again, the only way this works is if you don't allow yourself to watch Harry and Megan when you're not on, on the treadmill. Mm. Otherwise, it's just, you know, it's yeah. available to you all the time, right? Yeah. Um, and so again, this w- leads to kind of bizarre behavior sometimes because I my, my husband and I will discover like an album we really love. I remember Golden Hour by Casey Musgraves, one of my favorite albums. And we he was like, let's play it while we cook dinner. And I was like, nope, that's actually a workout album can't listen to it right now <laughs> so you have to, you have I, I to like be strict that. but yeah, it, it really, really really the temptation bundling really helps and um you end up looking forward yeah. yeah because the, the reality is that the things that are undesirable those are often activities that only have a long-term reward so you're helping future you. And we already talked about yeah. the empathy gap we have between present us and future us. We know future us is going to be healthier if we do X. We know that future um, us is going to be more socially satisfied if we do, you know, if we um, have coffee with a friend versus scrolling Instagram. We know all these things rationally, but they only deliver a reward typically down the line, right? Immediately, we don't often feel a great reward. So you need to find a new reward. So you need to find a reward to accompany um, that experience so that you associate that particular habit with something good. That's great. Uh, all right, it's time for texting office hours. And if we have time after texting office hours, I want like your 30-second thoughts on the Harry and Meghan doc and, <laughs> and your thoughts on Zach as the new Bachelor being the Bachelor fan that you are. Yeah. Uh, all right, let's bring him up. How's it going? I'm good. How are you? Good. What's your name? Uh, my name is Taylor and I'm 25. How can we help Taylor? So over the last couple weeks, uh, right before heading home for the holidays, uh, I matched with a boy on Hinge uh, that I was excited about, saw him at my gym and just kind of hit it off very quickly, moved to texting um, very fast and kind of just very much hit it off. The fact that I have a dog did not come up uh, in conversation, even though it is in my Hinge profile till maybe about a couple days. And so we started talking about my dog and his initial response was, I am 
very allergic to dogs. And to me, that is a very initial deep deal breaker, but I don't know how to let him down pretty easily, um, very easily, as well as kind of continue the confidence that I just gained um, in going back into the dating scene after kind of just that initial boy of just like that I got it ex- got excited about and want to continue to put myself out there and date. So he is he aware that you have a dog? He's very aware I have a dog and sent him a picture of this like, oh yeah, this is my dog Bailey. And his initial right of way he said, I'm very allergic to dogs. I was just at my aunt's house and my throat almost closed up because of these dogs. Wow. What kind of dog do you have? Yeah. I have a golden retriever. Okay. Oh. Yeah. So and, a lot of hair, a lot of hair flowing around this apartment. <laughs> yeah. And where did it go from here? Like where, like, did it, did it just end? No. So he started to just be like, oh, how clean are you? Uh, my cousin is has air purifiers and vacuums all the time. And I've been at her apartment and I have had no issues. So it kind of went of him getting a little bit, to me, a little bit presumptuous of after not even meeting just been texting of just like oh if this continues on here's the steps that you need to take so have you gone have you 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 haven't even gone on a date with this guy haven't even gone on a date yet okay and but but you like him or you like like him i was excited about like going on a date first date i've been on in two years since moving um to my new city and i was just kind of excited about it you know and until he told me about the dog thing so and now you're a little annoyed by his his follow-up, basically? I guess, his- yeah, I guess I'm a little, like, that's a little too soon to, like, I, I guess I'm a little confused about where to go next. I guess maybe I don't Fair. need to let him down, but it's just, like, I don't know if I should go on a date and just kind of put myself back out there and just, like, do the date thing, but I don't want to lead him on. Well, but how would you be, he me- knows you have a dog. Right. So you're not leading him on in, in that department. And neither right. of you know how you're going to feel about each other on a date. And he doesn't know how, I mean, I'm allergic to dogs. I have like, I'm allergic to some dogs. More than, I have found that I'm severely allergic to some dogs versus others. Mm-hmm. He might be the same, you know? Mm-hmm. So there is that. Um, yeah. He did say goldens are very much set off as allergies. Okay. Yeah. So it's like, and so where did the conversation like, oh. go after he was asking you about your cleanliness? I was just like, yeah, I'm very clean. You know, I have a dog with a lot of hair, kind of keep up with it, you know, could be better. And then it just kind of kept on moving into the getting to know each other. So it, it, it but he keeps on bringing up like, I want to meet your dog. Like he, he's actively wanting to meet my dog and like get to know me, which is great. But to, it's just like, I get nervous of, him coming over because I have other friends that are allergic to dogs and I just don't bring her around them. And they've been over with her not even in the apartment and they just get very, their allergies flare up. So I just like, I just don't know where to go, you know? I would not go on that first date. You wouldn't? No. <laughs> you should just shut Feels it down. like the cards are stacked against you guys because, well, one, I mean, if this were to become a long-term relationship, you can't travel with air purifiers around you all the time and you shouldn't have that pressure of maintain. I don't I don't know what it would mean to maintain a level of cleanliness with a golden retriever that would keep this person safe. Right. And so and that's what I was thinking, too, of like, it seems like he was putting a lot of pressure on me to keep my apartment clean. mm -hmm. 
And and it just seems like it's it's reasonable for you to prioritize your dog over this person you've never met before. I mean, right, I agree with right? that. Yeah, I, I'm as the, the exhibitionist in me would say. I think you could go on the date as long as you have just reasonable expectations. You have a lot more information now than you did before. With like you know, like you know, this is a potentially a big problem. Mm-hmm. There's also nothing wrong with like if someone you you kind of identified as someone who's kind of newly back in the dating scene. Mm-hmm. So, oh, that's true. If she's not looking like, for it, yeah. Just, like, there's, that's a good point. I think you both need to maybe chill out a little bit, both of you. Like, if you know, you haven't met. So you guys mm-hmm. kind of asking some of these more specific questions, it's just like you still don't really know if you're going to enjoy each other's company. Mm-hmm. So you're kind of trying to figure out. You're, you guys are talking like, fuck, we fell in love and now we don't know what to do, but you have this dog. And that's the kind of energy you're bringing to this. And I think maybe you both need to like, be excited that you met someone online that you have some sort of connection with, but let us know there's just a lot more to learn. But I, I just want to remind, like, there are a lot of people out there who really love dogs and aren't allergic to dogs. Yeah. And um, I, I guess it really depends on the intensity of your feelings for this person. I didn't get the sense that they were, like, in love with each other. I just got oh, the they, sense they were excited, yeah. right? And so you could yeah, potentially— like they like each profiles, Yeah, basically. yeah, yeah. So I just wonder if there are other people whose profiles you would like that— where you're, again, at least there's a, there's the potential of— What's interesting is I'm actually thinking more about what I would say to him if he was calling in, like the other side, because it would be like, hey, as someone who's allergic to dogs, like, just know that, like, this is something you're going to have to deal with. Like, Mm -hmm. you're going to have to, like, you're going to have to figure out ways to deal with it, not so much the people you date. You know, you're going to have to hope that the people you fall in love with or meet will be, like, amenable to, like, working with you a little bit, but, like, maybe just get to know her faster before you start asking her about, you know, like her, <laughs> her, 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 her hygiene, hygiene or, and, or things like see, that. I, yeah. I don't think it's, I, I don't know. I'm in the perspective where I, I can understand it seems a little pushy for you and like, oh, he's trying to force me to do stuff. I'm wondering if in his mind, he's trying to just create a solution mm-hmm. or like sure. he's so excited by you that he's like, oh, but like, here are the solutions that have worked for my friends. Oh. So I was like, you know what I mean? Like, yeah, I don't think I don't, he's trying to say like, get a cleaner. Like, As far as like <laughs> his pushiness rubbing you the wrong way, I think it, to Allie's point, it's like kind of coming with good intentions. He's just like trying to like not die, you know? Mm-hmm, like, totally. Yeah, which is totally I, fair. You know, and, but he also, but he's asking you because for whatever reason, premature or not, he seems to have as much as like interest and optimism about the potential that you seem to have as well. Mm-hmm. So I think maybe you guys just like, if you go on the date, you know, just pull back and just be like, well, you know, you have this dog, but let's just grab a cup of coffee and go from there. But like this, like, I need to meet your dog. It's Well, that's the part that concerned me just from a health perspective is I like care about this guy's safety and he's asking to meet your dog, but I thought he's like deeply allergic. Oh, he wants to see just how thing. allergic he yeah, is? Yeah, I think he wants to test it Oh gosh, out. that's the dangerous. Okay. Yeah, There's I don't know. There's a lot of pressure now that you put it that way of like, you want to see how allergic he is Yeah, to like what dog? if he like, has a really just... bad reaction? You're going to feel terrible. And I don't know. I think maybe if you have any interest in seeing him, you should say, let's let's table the dog conversation yes. for now and just like <laughs> Meet see, without the dog first. see if we like to see where this goes and see if we like each other. He's probably on some level just being like, everyone like has a fucking dog. I'm gonna have to figure this out. Mm-hmm. So like, he's trying to work with you. But it's a good point, Nick. It's like there's so many other hurdles you two would have to cross than the dog one before the dog one even became relevant. Like, yeah. do we like each other? Do we actually enjoy spending time together? How old is your dog? Oh, uh, she's two. Okay, so she's going to be here for a while. She's gonna be, yeah, be pretty young. <laughs> well, I mean, if you were like, she's, you know, 12, I'd been like, well, you know, maybe by the time you guys need to move in with each other. 
Well, the thing is, I thought about the same thing too. I'm like, well, she's a little older. It's a little sad to think about, but she's around for a long time. Yeah. And and I think the issue I'm having too is now that he's said these things about my dog and like my cleanliness, like I'm getting the ick and because and I don't yeah. want to get the well. Ick. If you have the ick, just well, oh well. Uh, we have to worry. We have to think of ways to get over the ick. Yeah, you can't let the ick be disqualifying. No, you no, can't. No, the ick can be a transient state. Yeah. I, I think that we need to try to resist we the We have ick. given too much credit Pre- yeah, to the totally. ick. We've given it too much valid, you know, mm-hmm. it's, so yeah. yes, we have to work through our icks uh, because well, we treat them like non-negotiables. that I've been having an issue with. Yeah. Is that I get the ick very quickly yeah. and that's something I'm trying to work on but I don't know how to stop. Well, having go on. So maybe like, again, like don't waste your time, but try to encourage yourself to go on dates and just have an open mind and try to learn something new about them and see if that new thing is an attractive thing that you learned, despite the other ick about it, you know, in a different department, like people are multifaceted. They have different layers. Like, you know, trust me, no matter what, like if you get in a serious relationship, the person you end up with has a ton of icks. You're just like now in love with them and stuck. You know, it's mm-hmm. trying to figure out, not stuck, but you know what I'm saying? Like you're pot committed, like you care. And it's all icks are, I think, are bad habits people reveal to the people they're dating just a little too early. Or things that are foreign to us, yeah. right? Like we're not used to that particular mannerism and it just takes some getting used to, for example. But again, mm-hmm. I, I think my my like TLDR would be if you were going to go on a date with this guy, like make the dog like a fourth date sort of situation, meeting yeah. the dog a fourth date. Like situation. she's like meeting my child, like yeah. my child. <laughs> also, like and then like you've already covered it. Like you, the dog shouldn't come up in conversation in the first date. Yeah, like, let's let's mm-hmm. just figure out other yeah. things and more focus on getting to know each other outside like, of the dog. conversations about air purifier quality. Not really a great. Yeah, yeah. and just just do that. But I think okay. as someone who's kind of you know trying to have this you know, new to dating and be adventurous, be adventurous and just try to go out and meet new people and have the mindset of, of not trying to, you know, decide who these people are before you even get to know them. I mean, you're getting icks about a guy you've never met. That's premature, right. you know? So a lot of those icks are just like, th- it must be things that are going on in your head. I mean, certainly he's doing things, but like you have never met him. So like, you know, someone asking you about cleanliness wouldn't in a lot of other scenarios wouldn't give you the ick you just don't know him and so mm-hmm. you've created this kind of character of who he is rather than who he actually is yeah and i think the other thing to other question i kind of have is being newer to the dating scene like i'm getting out of a situationship that i just realize it's not going anywhere out of here i'm done we're done and so i'm going out and if, like going out with my friends and stuff but they're all in relationships so it's been very tough to like put myself out there when I'm out trying to meet new people. So I get, and I have like one or two single friends. So it's kind of like, how do I, how do I put myself out there? Cause like in the city that I'm in, there's so many single people, but it's just like, when I go out, I don't, I'm not surrounded by enough people to like act like a group of single fun people, you know? Just gotta be patient and give yourself time. You know, these things aren't going to happen overnight, you know? And so mm-hmm. maybe focus more on meeting friends rather than people you should date, like build up your friend group. Mm-hmm. When you have a couple of single friends, just be adventurous about meeting new people who are, who can become your friends rather than people you could possibly date. And then from there, just be more, more open-minded. Okay. And just okay. try that out. So with, so I guess going back to the, I the vote go that, on the date and go on the date. don't okay. talk about the, the no dog, dog and no, yeah. like, <laughs> 
And just kind of set that up front on front expectation with him. I'm like, hey, I think we should go on a date and we should table the dog conversations uh, and see how we actually just feel about each other for now. Because like, okay. neither of you are going to like propose to the other person after the first date. Like you stop right. acting yeah. like. And if you do too much advanced planning around the dog situation, like you might not even like each other on that first date. And so it's just yeah. a waste of time, right? Make sure that you actually like each other before you start talking about the logistical elements. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, because I haven't. I also haven't talked to him in a couple days. Because again, the dog thing got brought up, and I, I was really trying to move past it. And knowing I was on here, I, I was just like, "Let's move past it. Let's not really talk about my dog." Just because, like, I know that if you meet her, she will probably have some type of allergic reaction. So I'd rather like us continue to get to know each other. So I haven't talked to him in a little bit, and and so I'm like, "How do I? Do I just text him out of the blue? Like, ask if he wants to grab a drink this week? Yeah. Like." Yeah. Do you think, look, okay. Yeah, just ca keep it super casual and simple. Like, okay. that's the thing. I think you should just, I think you should focus on making friends and and be open to dating and then just kind of keep your dates casual for now and, and just focus, especially the first and second date, but learning about who they are as a person and not mm -hmm. necessarily thinking about their potential as a partner until you've figured out a good sense of who they are. Yeah. Yeah, because I was re like reading your book, like lo also love your book, by Thank the way. Uh, I was reading like the first, the chapters about like first dates is kind of where and like being single is where I really like kind of focused my reading. And so I liked in the book that it was like asking questions, get to know each other. Because like you guys said it perfectly, I'm like, I might not even like him when yeah. I meet him. So yeah. I think I want to focus on like asking those good questions about like who he is as a person and his interests versus like, about my dog and like things and like the potential future because it just like you never know what could happen. So. Exactly. All right. Well, yeah. keep us posted. Okay. Let us know good what you luck. decide to do. Sounds good. Thank you so much. All right. Take care. <laughs> Have a good one. All right. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. <laughs> bye. Uh, Maya, it's been great. I wish you could talk more. Thanks for having me. This uh, is really fun. Please let my audience know all the great things you're doing. Obviously, you have your podcast, A Slight Change of, slight change of Plans. Anything else you want them to be aware of and follow? Yeah, so A Slight Change of Plans. Check it out anywhere you get podcasts. Um, the nice thing about the show is all the episodes are very timeless. So if you go back into the feed, they they will apply to your life no matter no matter when they were they were put out and then I'm on Instagram at and I wasn't on Instagram the last time I came on here because I was resisting social media but I'm finally you're, finally you're took the plunge to uh, next stop, my TikTok. my handle is uh, Dr Maya Shanker so D R M A Y A S H A N K A R uh, and are you excited or blah about Zach being the Bachelor I'm there about him being the Bachelor yeah, yeah. Well, it's really no unfortunate but he seems like a nice guy. Well, maybe there'll just still be good drama with the cast of Yeah, women. with the cast we'll, of women, yeah. We'll see. Always a pleasure. Always a pleasure. Thanks, guys. So, Thank so you so much. You. Don't forget to uh, send in those questions at asknick at thevilefiles.com uh, for anything all and every and all things Ask Nick. Uh, next week, don't forget, we have Justin Baldoni uh, on the podcast. Uh, that should be a great conversation. He's got some great books about, about masculinity and men and dating, and that'll be fun to talk with Justin about. And uh, be sure to tune in next week on Going Deeper. And if that's, I think that's it. Hey, Happy New Year, everyone. Happy New Year. Bye. Bye.